Well, this morning we have a different subject for you. How do we know the truth about Christmas? Ah, did you realise that it's only 33 days away? <laughs> That's less than five weeks. In five weeks' time it'll all be over. We've got the next one up. An introduction, we'll put the next one up as well. That's my granddaughter, or our granddaughter and our daughter. If you haven't seen Laura for a little while, she's now six months old. And there she is in her Christmas stocking. <laughs> Elizabeth sent that to me during the week and uh, said, look what I found in my Christmas stocking. <laughs> it's rather cute. Isn't Christmas an exciting time? Have you started your Christmas shopping yet? Um, how's the planning going for the family get-together? Ooh, it's getting close. It's such a busy time of year. And as things build to a climax, and sometimes among all the clamour uh, uh, for our attention, we sometimes forget the reason for the season, don't we? This year is going to be very different for our friends and relatives who are overseas. With um, COVID-19, do you think perhaps we should uh, cancel Christmas or postpone it this year? They're going to think about those sort of things overseas, aren't they? But uh, we're very fortunate in our land in New Zealand that we can celebrate it together. And let's hopefully uh, we'll stay in level one. But um, you know, there's one thing about the thought of postponing it is that it's 25th of December the correct date for the, the birth of Christ. It's a good question. I don't know whether you've ever thought about it, but... Um, a lot, of, uh, a lot of people claim that the church has just uh, hijacked an old ancient pagan festival and uh, that was celebrated uh, for the winter solstice in the northern hemisphere and uh, they've just Christianized it. And so you know, we've got this date that really isn't related to Christ's birth. Well, the interesting thing when you start investigating it is you, there's no record in the Bible of the date of Christ's birth. However, around the 4th century, uh, we find references to two widely uh, recognised dates that were used to celebrate Jesus' birthday. There was December the 25th in the Western uh, Roman Empire, but there was also January the 6th, which was in the East, and especially in Egypt and Asia Minor. The modern Armenian church continues to celebrate Christmas on the 6th of January. But for most of us in the West, we celebrate Christmas on the 25th of December. And uh, eventually what happened in the West was January the 6th became known as the Feast of Epiphany. Now the Feast of Epiphany was uh, the celebration of when the wise men came and worshipped Christ. Interestingly, there's 12 days between the 25th of December and the 6th of January. And that's where we get our 12 days of Christmas from. We often think about it as being 12 days before Christmas, but it's actually those 12 days between the 25th and the 6th of January. But was it really when the wise men arrived, 12 days after Christ's birth? I don't think so. We get a clue to that from Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, where it tells us that Herod put to death all those baby boys in Bethlehem who were two years and younger. So it was probably quite a bit longer than 12 days between his birth and when the wise men arrived. 
Now, most commentators, and I've been reading up on this, are in agreement that it's unlikely that the birth of Christ was on the 25th of December. And there's a number of reasons that we can find for that. First of all, the 25th of December in the Northern Hemisphere is the middle of winter. And even in the Promised Land, it gets cold and wet. And uh, we read in the Scriptures in Luke chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, that it was in the, uh, the shepherds, uh, it says that they were out in the fields at night. Now, shepherds in the Middle East weren't out in the fields in the middle of winter at night. They were brought their flocks in and they were sheltering uh, their flocks from the cold and the rain. At that time of year, the, the sheep were brought home and they were in sheltered pens. Luke chapter 2 verse 1 tells us it was the occasion of the census that the Roman um, uh, Caesar Augustus said that the whole Roman world was to be uh, to go back to their home and to be counted as part of the census. Now, if you were a Roman emperor and you had an empire that stretched up north to the wintered lands that are there, you wouldn't want people moving about in the middle of winter because it would be dangerous. The roads would be slippery and icy. There would probably be snow drifts and all the rest of it. So it's unlikely that the census would have taken place in the middle of winter. Um, there was also the thought that Mary had to walk a distance of some 112 kilometres from Nazareth down to Bethlehem on foot. Now, can you imagine her doing that in the middle of winter? And uh, it would have been a very dangerous time for her to do that. So winter would be uh, an especially difficult time to travel for anybody, let alone a pregnant woman like Mary. So is there any biblical evidence that it's cold and wet in Israel during uh, December? Well, yes, there is. If you look at Jeremiah 36, verse 22, and we can get that up on the screen. Um, yeah, we've been missing going through. It was yeah, Jeremiah 36, 22. It says that it was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the brazier in front of him. So it got cold, or it gets cold at that time of year. The, this, the ninth month is our December. In Ezra chapter 10, verse 9, on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. It gets wet. Uh, chapter 10, verse 13 says, But there are many people here, and it is his rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. You see, the people were having a, a big gathering in, uh, in Jerusalem, but they weren't able to uh, stand in the rain. So it is wet, and it's cold in December in the Middle East. In, in the promised land. Well, the point is that none of us know the date of Jesus' birth, so we can't um, say categorically that it was the 25th of December. We can't say categorically it was in September or July or whenever. We don't know. But it doesn't really matter, does it? We have a precedent for celebrating birthdays on dates that aren't the person's birthday. We have a holiday on the first Monday in June to celebrate the Queen's birthday. However, her actual birthday is the 21st of April. Oh, there's a problem. Well, did you know that before she became Queen, we didn't celebrate Queen's birthday weekends? No, it was always called the King's birthday weekend. 
and people saying, God save the king, instead of God save the queen, as we've done all my life. Well, you see, the king then, before Queen Elizabeth II, was King George VI. And if we put the birth dates up there, we'll have a look and see. We've got quite a number of them. I don't know what's happened to my things, but... Um, yeah, it's, I've got it too big for your screen, I'm sorry. Anyway, look, there's a whole list, and we can just go down them until we get to Queen Victoria, who was born on the 24th of May, 1819. But we celebrate their birthday on that first Monday in June. So there's no problem with having an official birth date that's different to the actual birth date. And we could keep going back in time past Queen Victoria and all that sort of thing. It doesn't matter. It's a precedent that's there that we do use. And the monarch's birthday is always celebrated on that middle weekend in the northern summer. And uh, that's the tradition that we have rather than celebrating it on the monarch's actual birthday. And we get a holiday from it too, which is marvellous. We also get a holiday when Christ's birthday is celebrated. So isn't that wonderful and something to be giving God thanks for? Well, the 25th, of December is the date chosen by the world to celebrate his birthday. So let's make the most of that occasion. Use it as an opportunity to focus on why he was born. He was born to be the saviour of the world. And that's something that we can celebrate. And it gives us an opportunity to share the good news of the gospel and why he came for us. And so as people are doing so many things and getting excited about Christmas and giving gifts and all that sort of thing, we can share with them also the wonderful gift that God gave to us when he sent his son to be our saviour. The main focus of the New Testament writers is not the date of Jesus' birth, but rather that God sent his son at just the right time in all of history to accomplish his work and his will and his saving purpose to fulfill the promises that he had given way back in the Garden of Eden. The Apostle Paul proclaimed in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, that when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to be his children. Isn't that wonderful news? At just the right time. We don't know what date that was, but God does, and he did it at the right time. And we read in the Gospel of Mark, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. From a historical perspective, it may be interesting to know and work out and debate when he came and when he was born, but theologically, that's not important. The important thing when we look at the big picture is that his actual birth date holds no relevance to us, but the fact is that it was important that he came. We know he came, and we know why he came, and the Bible is clear on this. Part of the reason that John wrote the gospel and his letters to the church in Ephesus was so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we may have life in his name. And that's the wonderful good news of Christmas, isn't it? So John's first letter to the um, church in Ephesus 
is found in the book of 1 John. And we're just going to look a little bit as an introduction to, uh, to that this morning. The epistle was written by John the Apostle, but his name doesn't appear in the epistle, does it? Uh, but the founding fathers of the church ascribe its authorship to John the Apostle. The author claims to be an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And the early writers of the church history, uh, such as Arrhenius, Clement of Alexander and Tertullian, they ascribed the letter to John. And sometime after the Ephesian church was founded by the Apostle Paul, um, sorry, I've got getting ahead of myself, uh, yeah, by, yeah, after it was founded by the Apostle Paul, um, John became its pastor. And then he was taken by the Romans and he was put on the island of Patmos and uh, he was put in exile there. And while he was there, he wrote the book of Revelation. We, um, we're not quite sure, but he may have also written the, Apostle, uh, the, uh, the um, Gospel of John. But he also wrote these three letters to the church. And he addresses the church as a woman. Because um, of censorship in those days, I guess, uh, he was writing to the church to encourage them. And uh, so he addressed them as the, a woman. Church tradition suggests that John died in Ephesus and he was buried there because he was their pastor. And uh, the, the, the Ephesians, or the Ephesus was the first church that was addressed by the Lord in those seven letters in the book of Revelation, if you remember. Uh, in Revelations chapter 2 and 3 we read uh, the first letter was to the Ephesian church. And in Revelation 2 verse 4, Jesus said to them, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. And so John had this real um, concern for the Ephesians. And so he wrote this letter to encourage them. The problem had become that they were, their faith was tarnished. See, God, Jesus said to them, you have forsaken the love that you had at first. You're not as enthusiastic and keen as you were when you started out. Their Christian faith had become tarnished. And I think it's a little bit like today. Many of the believers in the church were children or grandchildren of the first generation of the Ephesian church. And um, you know, it's like that today with us. We have, I'm, I'm a grandchild of, a great-grandchild of my great-grandmother. And she was a wonderful Christian lady. And my grandparents and my parents. And now I've got children and children coming through and it's a number of generations that we've been following the Lord and not everyone is as keen as they were at the start and this is what happened in the church of Ephesus the bright sheen of the Christian faith and their love for the Lord it was not as bright as it once been it had become tarnished and it's a little bit like the smell of a new car I don't know whether any of you have ever bought a new car but you get in and you smell it oh it smells beautiful but um, you know, it doesn't take long before that tarnish wears off that, that, well, that lovely smell um, wears off as the car becomes used. Well, the fire and excitement of those early days had faded in the Ephesian church. And gradually the Judeo-Christian um, ethics that set them apart from normal society was breaking down. There was a developing disregard for the Bible, uh, the Bible standards and the call of the, to be different to the world. This new generation of children and grandchildren of the first Christians didn't want to be different. Instead, the new generation of Ephesians had become Christians only in name. 
They were ignoring the rule of God in their lives. And persecution was no longer the greatest threat uh, to the church. The new danger to the Ephesian church was seduction from the inside, not persecution from the outside. In Revelation 2 verse 6, if we've got the next slide there, it says, and this is the Lord speaking to the church, but you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. John was concerned that the insidious teachings of the Nicolaitans was infiltrating the churches in Asia Minor. And um, in fact, when you look at some of those other seven letters to the churches, you'll find that that's already happening. And so John was concerned that this would happen also to the Ephesians. Uh, both Paul and, and, and Jesus warned that this would happen. Uh, in Matthew 24, verse 24, Jesus said, For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you this in advance. And over in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, Paul said, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. Even from your own number, people will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So Christianity was not so much in danger of being destroyed, it was in danger of being changed into something different, something far less potent. The new generation of Christians were trying to improve it and make it more respectable in the eyes of the world. And that reminds us a little bit of what it's like today. Christians today are not prepared to talk with people about their need to repent from their sin and their need to have faith in Christ. Instead, they talk about love and tolerance. Preachers have moved away from teaching the inerrancy of the Bible as God's word from Genesis to Revelation. Instead of teaching that it sets the standard for our lives and the rule of faith for one's life, preachers are picking and choosing ideas based on their own opinions. They no longer teach about God's holiness, but are tickling the ears of their congregations with modern philosophies like prosperity doctrines and self-improvement programs. Even church music has taken its focus off, the exalting, off exalting the work of Christ at the cross. So many modern church songs concentrate on our feelings and our experiences and emotions. The Christian faith has become tarnished. There is a disregard of Bible standards, and that was the case in Ephesus. Persecution was no longer the enemy of Christianity. And so to counter um, persecution, a sect called the Nicolaitans had been infiltrating the church to make it more acceptable in the eyes of the world. The Nicolaitans introduced a false uh, teaching called Gnosticism. This was the real enemy of Christianity. Christ literally hates this false teaching as we read in Revelation chapter 2 verse 6. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. Please note, he didn't say he hated the Nicolaitans, he hates their practices and their teaching, their false teaching and the error that it leads the church into. And so this is the false teaching that Christ abhors and that John was so concerned about. So what is this term Gnosticism? The term Gnosticism refers or comes to us from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. 
Gnosticism was largely an attack on historical Christianity or an attempt to infiltrate and undermine it. And there were two main um, doctrines to the Gnostic beliefs. The first one was the supremacy of uh, knowledge. The Gnostics thought, and they taught, that one could reach a higher plane of spirituality by piercing through the surface to reach a higher esoteric spiritual knowledge of God. In other words, only a few, that is the Gnostics, are the ones who are privy to the deep, deep knowledge of God. The second was the separation of spirit and matter. Should be able to get that up there, yep. Although Gnostic beliefs varied a good deal, we can sum up a few essential points on which we are all agreed. The Gnostics taught that the material world is bad, the spirit world is good. They taught the material world is under the control of evil, ignorance or nothingness. They taught a divine spark is somehow trapped in some but not all humans and it alone of all that exists in the material world is capable of redemption. This is getting fairly deep, I'm sorry, but um, I'm just trying to explain to you what this dangerous sect was talking about. They also taught that salvation is through a secret knowledge by which individuals come to know themselves and their origin and their destiny. And since a good God could not have created an evil world, it must have been created by an inferior, ignorant or evil God. No wonder Christ hated this doctrine. They teach that the only hope for humanity is to acquire the information it needs to perfect itself and to evolve out of its current physical state. Some of them taught that, that the material world was so evil that they needed to um, discipline themselves and so they would whip and do sorts of things to themselves. I don't know whether you ever watched that um, Dan Brown um, movie, I can't remember what it was called now, but um, there was a, a, a priest that used to whip himself in there. It was a, uh, I've forgotten the name of it, but anyway, that just reminds me of that, and that's part of what that sect was all about. And the other one was, look, the world is evil, and it doesn't really matter what you do. So you can sin and do what you like, because that's all part of this world which is evil, and it doesn't matter. The spiritual side is inside, and that's the part that is saved. So it was a very very uh, malicious type of teaching. When it came to Christianity, the Gnostics split into two factions on the subject of Christ's deity. And this is another reason why Christ hated them. They denied the humanity of Christ. They believed that it was impossible for God, who was spirit and good, to become flesh, which was matter and evil. And so they couldn't accept that Jesus was the Son of God. They taught instead that Jesus only seemed to have a body. And then there were the Cerinthian Gnostics, and these were the followers of a guy called Cerinthus, and that separated the man Jesus from the power of Christ. And they believed that the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, came down on Jesus when he was baptized, and the power of Christ uh, came and rested on the man Jesus. And this power then departed from him, before his death on the cross. So it was simply the man Jesus who died, not Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Now these Gnostic heresies denied that God became man and walked on this earth in the person of Jesus Christ to bring redemption and salvation to mankind. So having eliminated Christ as the only way to God, the Gnostics believed that they could make their own way to God through the pursuit of knowledge. 
And some of the outcomes of this Gnostic teaching led Christians to compromise the truth. In Acts chapter 15, verse 29, where the, um, the early church uh, apostles gave this instruction to the church, if we can put that next verse up there, it says, You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. And then in Acts 21, verse 25, again it is uh, mentioned, this instruction for the Christian church. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Now the Gnostics were saying that these restrictions do not apply to us because these things relate to the material world, which is evil anyway. We can join with the pagans in the pagan world and go to their feasts, and we can eat the food sacrificed to their idols, and we can participate in their rituals. You see how evil it was. Those rituals included sexual immorality and other sinful practices. And participation of the church in these festivities made the Christians more acceptable in the world that they were living in. And so John writes this letter to combat his, this error. Let's begin by reading chapter 1 of 1 John. The incarnation of the word of life. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make your joy complete or to make our joy complete so in this epistle John sets the record straight about who Jesus is and how one might have fellowship with him that which was from the beginning he starts with well what beginning you might ask well, the Bible has three beginnings in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth now as far back as man can think God was already there if you are a creationist and believe the earth is around 6,000 years old, well, God was there at its beginning. If you're an evolutionist and believe the earth is millions or billions of years old, God was already there at its beginning. He was there before the earth began. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So here John is referring to the revealing of the eternal Logos, before all creation. When the book of Genesis uses the words in the beginning, it gives us the history of the world and the realm of time. And the second beginning we have is when John uses the words in the beginning, he introduces us to the Logos, the word who existed in eternity before the world began. So that's another beginning. And John 1 verse 2 says, He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And when it comes to the beginning that John's talking about here in 1 John, the third re biblical reference to the beginning is found in our text, that which was from the beginning. John is referencing here things relating to the Lord Jesus 
that were true of the Lord Jesus Christ since the beginning, since his birth, since he left the glory of heaven and came down to this earth as a little baby at Christmas time. <clears throat> John is referring to the beginning of the time that he himself, as an eyewitness, had direct contact with Jesus. John is right from the start refuting many of the false claims that were being made about Jesus by the Gnostics. There were people going around saying all sorts of things about him. But later John would refer to these people as antichrists who brought new ideas but not those truths which were from the beginning. Even today there are those who circulate lots of things and new ideas about Jesus. Well, many of them are actually not new ideas. They're just recycling things that Satan's used in the past. But in 1 John, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, we proclaim this concerning the word of life. One of the things the Gnostics used to say was that Jesus wasn't a real man. Remember, the Gnostics taught that the spirit was good and all matter is evil. They found it unacceptable to merge deity with humanity or matter. And so they denied that Jesus was an actual man. They conjured up the idea that he was a phantom. But John counteracts this notion by making three points about Jesus, about the reality of the humanity of Christ. He says, we have heard him. We have seen him with our own eyes and we have physically touched him. So let's have a look at these points. We have heard, John says. John's not babbling about his own opinions in his speculations, or he's talk, not talking about something that someone else has passed on to him. He's testifying that he himself personally had spoken with the Lord Jesus, and he heard his voice as he listened to him. He was listening to God. Hearsay is not an acceptable um, in a court of law, and nor in this world's court of opinion. People will listen only to what we have personally seen and heard. We can't testify to anything else. We can't testify that what you talked about in, 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 at the breakfast table this morning because I wasn't there. You could tell me but that could be something that can't be relied on in court. But John physically heard that which we have seen with our own eyes. Peter declares, for we did not follow uh, cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John, like Peter, uh, was, was there. He saw and he watched. He observed. John writes, that which we have looked upon. And my wife's sitting over there and I've got to be careful what I say here. But when I first saw Ruth, I did a lot more than just see. I watched her. I saw the way that she walked. I was captivated by the way that she dressed, the way she carried herself, her mannerisms. You know, it's over 50 years since we've been going together. And I listened to the way that she talked and sang. I admired the things that she did, and I knew that this was the young woman that I wanted to have a relationship with. Now, 50 years later, that relationship is stronger than ever. And John writes, we have seen him with our own eyes. In other words, we are eyewitnesses. For three years, John and his fellow disciples watched Jesus, and they knew this man intimately, and they had a special relationship with him. They watched as he preached the gospel to the poor. 
They saw him heal the brokenhearted. They were witnesses as he healed the sick, as he gave sight to the blind, as he set free those who were oppressed by demons, and as he raised the dead to life. They saw and heard as Jesus tenderly taught them the words and the ways of the Father. In his gospel account, John wrote in chapter 1 verse 14, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John was one of the witnesses that were on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw the glory that Christ had that was hidden in his human form. We've just been through a presidential election in the United States, but back in 1988, there was a presidential election going on and um, the vice presidents had a, a de debate and one of them, some older ones here may remember, was Dan Quayle. And uh, he was debating with the opposition um, vice president ca um, candidate uh, who was named Lloyd Benson. And Dan Quayle said this, I've had as much experience in this Congress as Jack Kennedy when he sought the presidency. And Lloyd Benson immediately said, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Senator, Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. And you are no Jack Kennedy. Well, in this epistle, John is essentially saying to the Gnostics and the others who are attacking the life and works of Jesus Christ, I have served Jesus Christ. I knew Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was a friend of mine. And Gnostics, you're no friend of Jesus. But what about those of us who actually haven't seen or heard the voice of Jesus? What about those of us who live some 2,000 years after the events? The Bible says that even though we may not be able to see him with physical eyes, we can see him with the eye of faith. First Peter 1 verses 8 and 9 says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible joy and glorious joy. Uh, inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end results of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You remember Thomas, the doubting disciple. He categorically stated in John 20 verse 25b, Unless I see his hands, in his hands, the print of the nails, and I put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Jesus later came to him and he said to Thomas in John 20, verses 27 to 29, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas' response was, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who haven't seen me and yet have believed. And many of us are those people who have believed on him, but haven't seen him, except through the eyes of faith. The writer of the Hebrews defines faith in chapter 11, verse 1, as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So John's contradicting the propagators of the Gnostic heresy concerning Jesus by declaring three points. We have heard him, we have seen him, and the last point is our hands have handled. Jesus wasn't a phantom, as the Gnostics maintained. He was a real person. 
In Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 40, there is the account of Jesus meeting up with the disciples after his resurrection from the dead. Verse 36 says, While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost, and he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do, you doubt, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. In this passage in John 1 verse 1, the word handle is the Greek word meaning to manipulate, to verify by contact, to touch, to examine closely. Not only did they gaze intently, they examined Jesus closely. The word handle is also used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when blind Isaac felt the hands of the trickster Jacob. In Genesis 27 verse 22, when Jacob came in and to deceive Isaac to get the blessing of the eldest. He had goatskins on his hand. Remember that story? And Jacob wanted to feel his hands to make sure it was really Isaac, uh, really Esau. And so Jacob tricked him by having goatskin on his hands. It's the same way. These disciples physically touched the Lord Jesus himself. They knew he was real. He was no ghost. Even after his resurrection, Imagine for a moment that you are one of those disciples, seeing Jesus do all those uh, remarkable miracles and then being crucified and rising from the dead. You too would have wondered like the disciples, what manner of man is this? After his resurrection, Jesus anticipated a reaction like this and he offered them proof. In Luke chapter 24, verses 42 to 43, he asked them for some broiled fish to eat. John is telling us in the verse, first verse of our study, we have seen him, we, we have heard him, we have seen him, and we've handled and touched him physically. He is the Christ, and he is a man. At the end of verse 1, John calls Jesus the word of life. He is the word, or logos, of life. He is the logos. Jesus is the total concept of God seen through a human medium. He is the word of life. He is the exact representation of the particular life that is God revealed in bodily form. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, For in Christ, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Jesus himself said to his disciples in John 14 verse 9, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. For you theologians, Paul writes in, first, in Colossians, 1 verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 describes Jesus as, as the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. This is the testimony of the disciples who saw, who listened and touched. The Apostle John begins his letter letting us know who Jesus is. He says we have seen him, we have We've heard him, and we looked intently upon him, and we have studied him closely. He is Christ, and he is a man. He is the God-man. John gives us his sworn statement. He is testifying concerning the identity of this man, Jesus. He is giving us 
a spiritual affidavit, an official declaration that this Jesus is both God and man. Two verses later in verse 3 he says, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete, to make your joy complete. In other words, John wants you and I to come into a relationship with God the Father through his Son Jesus Christ that will allow us to have fellowship with him. John wants you and I to come into a relationship with God the Father, a relationship that will make your joy full and complete. That's why he came into the world. That's why we celebrate Christmas and testify to the world that his birth brought good news for us all. He came to be our saviour. The question is, is he your saviour today? Don't leave here this morning without knowing him personally as your saviour. If you're not sure, talk to the person who brought you here this morning, or to the pastor or to one of your elders. Talk to someone, and I'm sure that they will be happy to share with you how this good news of Christmas, of Christ's birth, the reason that he came, can bring you joy, the joy of sins forgiven and a new and living relationship with the Lord God. He loves you, and he's waiting for you to invite him to become part of your life so you can share the joy of knowing the real Christ of Christmas. May God add his blessing to these thoughts, and thank you for your attention. God bless.